Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. A lot of the shows that are on the air now that the hosts don't commit completely, the the producers all want to get home and have real lives. You know, the writers on the Letterman show would be there all night. The bookers, we'd a drop a guest would drop out at the last minute. They'd be hustling all over town, you know, at, at all hours to, to to fill those holes. Uh, it's a lifestyle. It becomes a lifestyle. I'm so excited. My guest today is an incredibly talented executive producer and a guy who is a leader of men and women like no other I've seen. I've worked with him on many occasions. And when you work with this man, it's like he walks on the set and it's like you say to yourself, there's a new sheriff in town. You might know him the most from his stint on Late Show with David Letterman and the original incarnation as well. Uh, I believe he spent 15 years uh, working with Dave in that capacity and other capacities. And one of the greatest television shows in my life or my existence or anybody's existence. But he's gone on to produce so many other things. He worked on Chris Rock's show. He's worked with uh, Wayne Brady, the show he got an Emmy with on daytime television. He's worked with Drew Carey on his green screen show. He's worked with D.L. Hughley with Weekends on the D.L. Worked with Dimitri Martin. I mean, the guy has worked the Academy Awards uh, shows, the executive Bruce the pre-shows. Uh, and recently, he was the executive producer of Dion Cole's Black Box and Lopez Tonight for TBS. So please welcome my guest today, good friend, Robert Morton. It's a pleasure to be here, Barry. All right. I like sitting on the big couch. This is I a... Feel, I feel honored. Very large couch. If this were a casting couch, it would be an orgy. Well, knowing how tall you are, Barry, this is your <laughs> casting couch. <laughs> I'll see you at the trial. There you go. The um, it's so funny. I, I I keep most of, and you talk about the shows that I've I've worked on. A lot of those are pre DVD, pre digital for sure. And I have 
I go from three. I have three quarter inch, half inch DVD, and I keep all the shows that I've done in a closet in my garage, appropriately so. And I, I, I often refer to it as the Museum of Mediocrity. <laughs> it is not the Museum of Mediocrity. So I go in my closet. I have Viewmaster. That's how old I am. <laughs> it's pretty, uh, pretty weird. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's start way, way back. Um, where'd you grow up and then tell me about your upbringing and the first moment that happened in your life where you said to yourself, I want to be in entertainment. I, I, I grew up in New York, uh, in Long Beach, New York, and I pretty much knew I was going to be in entertainment from as far back as I remember. I mean, I, I, I think there were two things I wanted to do. I wanted to do be in entertainment, and I wanted to own a candy store. And and <laughs> candy store was was really my preference now. And still is, actually. Go figure. Um, and I knew I, I, I just used to watch TV and listen to music, and, and I had a a voracious appetite for What for, did you What did you used to watch back then? Oh, I used to watch. I mean, I, I it, it's so funny because I have a, a seven-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter, and I think about my seven-year-old, and I was watching news when I was a kid, and I was watching documentaries, and, and how kids today don't really do that anymore. I remember as a kid, well, I'll, I'll date myself, I remember the, the Kennedy assassination, I was in fifth grade. And I remember being glued to the television set. And my f- daughter's in sixth grade now, you know, we don't. We wouldn't let her watch coverage of of an assassin shooting a president. It's 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 too sensitive at this point. I I don't know if it's the political correctness of 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 where we are in, in it's life. Inter- and- it's interesting you say that because I thought to myself the other day uh, and uh, taking a little detour on this, but this is important. I was thinking, what is it about our children? They're ahead in every single capacity, but what is it? They're all behind him, and I figured it out. When we were a kid, we got to watch those things. We got, you know, it was like, uh, hey, mom, dad, listen, I'm going to Joey's house. Uh, where's that? Oh, it's three miles down the road through the woods, the mill yard, and you take a left, and I'll be there all day, and I'll come back for supper. And they're like, okay, no problem. Nowadays, you can't even, like, you, you, you're in the school with it's fenced off with locks everywhere, and you're looking around to see where your yeah, kid is. Yeah. And, and our kids, the only thing they don't have is independence that we had. And I wonder how that's going to affect them in terms of their careers and things oh, like it, that. Oh, it, it will absolutely affect them. They also, I mean, they won't be dealing, you know, by the time my kids are old enough, I always say that the, the, the best business people that came out of my generation were the drug dealers. Well, I that's mean, sort of like a candy store. I mean, I mean, all the drug dealers that I went to college with all became very successful guys. And it was about, they had big business acumen. They had to be a high level of confidentiality. They were dealing with, with a lot of money. It was covert. I think that our kids today, that there's going to be no challenge there's going to be no you know i i mean i go back to 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 just knowledge of of news and current affairs i mean i remember when i was a kid i always knew who the secretary of state was i always knew who the secretary of the treasury was the attorney general i look at my my 12 year old and she's a smart kid doesn't have a clue does not have a clue what's standing does not have a clue but yet has a thousand times more access to information 
But anyway, go back. Well, which is which is always what I also talk about it whenever I talk about the next generation of people who are going to be in the television industry and the film industry. That you well, know, if we wanted to watch a movie, if we wanted to see a Lubitsch film, you had to wait till it was in a theater or on you know a late night million dollar movie in New York. Uh, our kids could just you know watch it instantly. Watch it's it amazing, it. anything. But for some reason. You throw out a reference. You look at comedians today to throw out an old reference. It goes over heads. Yeah. It's amazing that, that the frame of reference is so limited with, with the access that they have. That's true. But go back. So tell me kind of some of the, besides the JFK assassination, what were some of the television programs that you would watch that inspired you to be in the business? I used to watch The Tonight Show. I remember watching The Tonight Show, The Sullivan Show. Ed you know, Sullivan Show. Ed Sullivan. It was, it was uh, my favorite my favorite show. One of my favorite stories about that, and again, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to get it right, but for artists, sometimes artists, there's two different sides to every story with the manager of the representation, and I guess Jim Morrison and Doors were on the Ed Sullivan show, and they, they trashed the dressing room, and the producer came to the manager of Jim Morrison and Doors and said, they will never beyond the Ed Sullivan show again and the manager went up to Jim Morrison and said what the fuck are you doing now you're never going to be on the Ed Sullivan show again and Jim Morrison just looked at him and said we just did the Sullivan show we, we don't have to do it again we've already done it that's funny that's great <laughs> that theater I mean I that, that theater played a big part in my career that's the theater that David Letterman went yeah, into yeah I mean I I was a page at that theater you were a page early on. Yes. So I, wait, so okay. So you're inspired to do uh, the entertainment business. Then you. Get, I, I, I was I, I was telling you the other big show that influenced me over the years, and this will sound odd, the Jerry Lewis Telethon. I mean, I used to wait for that all year. It was you know, and I'd watch for 19 hours. I wouldn't leave the television. How many times did you pledge? Would, huh? How many times did you pledge once, when you were a kid? Once. <laughs> Poor Jerry. All those years just for one pledge from you. <laughs> That's why he got fired. <laughs> the, um, but I, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be in variety television. So you're in high school and you're gearing up for college. You went to American University. Yeah. What was your major? TV production. Got it. So it's funny. I had gotten a job. I knew that I was going into comedy when I got a job at 15, 16 years old in the Catskill Mountains at a hotel. Which hotel? The Raleigh Hotel. Tell which, me some of the comedians that were. Oh my God! It, and it, the cats go. You know, it's every everybody, every old you know, names that you wouldn't know from Van Harris to Freddie Roman. Freddie Roman, of Dick course. Capri, Dick, Dick Capri, Dick Lord, uh, London Lee. Do you remember London Lee? I remember Dick Capri and Dick Freddie Capri, Roman. London Lee, because Freddie Arnell, because Freddie Roman actually was one of the people who helped sell the roast to Comedy Central yes. when I was. Uh, He's working. a lovely man. Yeah, I still see him. He's you know he's, he's but, very but the, nice. But man. the Hackett's didn't show up there. Well, I met Hackett years later. I'll I'll tell you. I don't know if you I know the story about me and Hackett. No, but I'm dying for it. But you got to take me through this first. Uh, so I I knew I w used to make a pest of myself with all these comics, and it always believe me. Years later, it came back to haunt me when I'd get a call from you know whoever it was that I used to bug about. Hey, let me give you a joke. Let me do that. Whatever it was. You know, now I'm producing the Letterman show. Hey, why don't you put me on that show? And it's like, oh, you know, not quite right for for the young audience. It was weird, but I uh, I used to go to the shows every night. They it, for for people who are young, 
the Catskill Mountains was a place where you'd pay one price. It would be a nightly fee, you know, be at $110 a night for your room. You would get three meals of unlimited food. You could order, <laughs> you could look at the menu and order every main course on the menu. And yeah, it was like literally the Catskills were like a cruise ship without being on the water. Yeah, it really was. And they used to have shows. And the hotel that I worked at, the Raleigh Hotel, was owned by a Broadway producer whose name was George Gilbert. And he was very prominent in the early 60s, mid-60s in, in show business and Broadway. He produced Sammy Davis Jr.'s first shows. So there was a rich showbiz tradition at, at this hotel. And they would have two shows a night. The first show would be an early show, which was probably on at about nine, if I remember correctly. And it was usually a singer and a comedian, or vice versa, comedian, open singing club. And then there would be a late show, which was always a dirty comedian. It's, it's, I remember uh, big Lenny Schultz was, was, was Lenny Schultz was the chicken man who, um, we just, uh, uh, Chris Albrecht was telling me about that was, that was one of the first people he represented with Eddie Murphy, Billy Crystal and, uh, Jim Carrey and Lenny Schultz was his, one of his other clients. Yeah. No. And it's, it's funny. And I knew Lenny from, from there. When he used to do these, you know, one o'clock in the morning shows, and he used to start out with a small audience, and then after, you know, six months, the word got out that this guy's the craziest guy. He would fill a room, you know, one in the morning, packed nightclub of people coming to see. And him. you know, it, you talk about formulas in comedy and how things are and the way things work and sort of the recycled formulas. People think like when they see Def Jam or they see a show that's like a dirty comedy special, they think, hey, well, wow, this is one of the first ones ever. But back then at the Catskills, that was the original like uh, nasty show from the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. The, the Catskills, were, it, it was a crazy place because it was an old, it was predominantly, obviously, mostly Jewish called the Borscht Belt. It was mostly Jews from New York City, uh, people who came post-war, looking for cheap vacations. It was not an expensive place. But for some reason, it was driven by comedy and Latin music. Every hotel had a Latin band. And, that and probably, I don't know why that, no, Jews that probably... and Latin music are so closely associated, but they are. Oh, well, as John Stewart might say in a stand-up, he says uh, between uh, black people and Jews, he never understood why they couldn't get along because they, they shared the same pain. You know, but the only difference was that black people learned how to put it to music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Latino, the, the Latino thing came from, I imagine, the, Luce, uh, the Lucille, whatever you call it, the Lucy show with, uh, with Desi Arnaz. Oh, and no, it was way before that. It was way before that. What do you mean? That show was on in the 50s. Well, I'm talking about you know Latin music in, in the 40s. No, I'm talking about it the, when you were there at the Borscht. No, no, but I'm saying there was all, oh, every yeah. Latin music was, was the, I, I often think of what the rhythm of, of, of the Catskills was because it's really hard to explain. I try to explain it to my wife who's younger and who came from California. I try to tell her about, about what the Catskills were like. And, you know, they have a picture, but it's, you can't express how how exciting it was, especially as a young kid. And tell me the first comedian you saw that went on in front of a crowd and just, you know that, because one of the things I've talked about is like 
when I first listened to the first album, comedy album that that moved me was Bob Newhart. And when you listen to the album, it was so cerebral, and there were so many titters of laughter. And it it wasn't that he wasn't killing, but it was so. It was such like it was almost like a you know at a yacht club. It's like oh that was nice whatever. And the first time most everybody who is in our audience probably saw a crowd actually double over and and literally lose control of themselves physically is probably the early Def Jam shows mm-hmm. where a comic would go on and literally the audience was it was like the wave was going inside the crowd. But I know the Catskills were known for shows where literally people lost their minds in the audience. And who was a comedian? Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And the first comedian you saw where you saw a crowd just completely obliterated. Hackett, for sure. Hackett, Buddy Hackett. No, no, nobody comes close. He used to say to me that I always asked him, like, who is the uh, greatest comedian that you think ever lived? He said, me. No, he, he and, was and very proud of that. He told me that in 1953, he was making $175,000 a week in Vegas. That's how popular he was. And he said he did the, the first two HBO specials, which is probably true, yes. Yeah, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Oh, I remember him, well, well I, I met him when I was in college. And the, I remember the first time I went to Las Vegas, he was... He, he said he was the executive vice president of the Sahara Hotel. <laughs> and they probably gave him a piece of the hotel for performing there. He was making that much money at the time. And on the top of the tower at the Sahara Hotel, I think the building's still standing, there was painted on on the, the, the facade was in, there, there were probably 10 foot high letters. It said, Buddy Hackett. Whether he was working there or not, his name was on the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the craziest thing ever. You just drive by the Sahara, and Buddy Hackett's name was was up there. He was he was wild. I mean, he. I met him. I, I was saying I I used to do a radio show in college, similar to this. I'd interview comedians, and I got you know it's it's when I first met Robert Klein and Hackett and George Carlin and Cheech and Chong. I used to I had a relationship. I went to school in Washington. And there was a chain of, of, of theaters. You remember the, the music fairs. Yes. And there was a Westbury Music Fair, and there was one in Jasonsburg, Just, just so our audience knows, these theaters were predominantly in the round. They were outdoor venues, but they were tented off. And they were indoors, but they were normally in a tent. Some of them were built 
as facilities, but most of them. And it was a 360 degree arena, and the stage rotated. Always in the middle and rotated. And so there was never really a bad seat. You know, the comedians and the singers would have to, you know, be disoriented. I remember the road, they had to light up the single road to the dressing room, so they had some orientation where they were. Yeah, and you never knew where you were when you came around. And just to let you guys know uh, about something about In the Round from another perspective that I learned when I did uh, the Dane Cook special and tour. It's a fascinating thing if you're on the other side of the business, if you're a promoter listening or somebody in the business who wants to get into this. When you're doing a regular theater that's a presidium, which means the stage is on the end and the seats come out, if you have an artist that, let's say, is selling three quarters of the seats, your venue is going to look empty or it's going to look very empty. But if you do a show in the round, what people don't understand is the seats around the stage are maybe... There's 25 seats that go around the stage. And the next row, maybe it's 35. And the next row, 45. You get to the last row of the theater, and you're in Madison Square Garden. That last row of the theater could be 2,000 seats. Could be 1,000 seats. So you can, you can go into a place like Boston Garden or something like that, like Dane did, and God forbid you didn't sell out and you were 4,000 seats short. Literally, it might be the, the last five rows of the theater empty and when you're looking out in the round it's one of the most amazing things you can have as a performer and these music fairs were incredible for performers they learned how to perform in the round and you were so close because what happens if you can visualize it if you're in a regular theater that just has a stage with a, a backdrop and you're looking out if you're at the halfway point of that theater okay that's a great seat in the round, the halfway point in a regular theater is your worst seat that you can possibly have in the round. So when you do a show in a regular theater or any performers or promoters or anything like that, the last half of that theater that you're in, all those seats are shittier than the worst seat in a show in the round. And that's why those theaters were so popular, because you felt like you could touch the performer. Yeah, they were great. They were great. And it, and it was always fascinating to watch. You mentioned a, bu a Buddy Hackett working in the round, and his, the, the you know the the bulk of his act was working with with people in the audience, and he would always you know he'd pick on a lady, and then he'd do another twenty minutes, and he'd go back to the lady in the audience, or and it was amazing to watch him in the round because you know the woman would be completely behind him, and by the time the stage came around, he would know to go back to her, and he was he timed everything by the rotation of the stage. And it was it was it was masterful to watch. It really was. So tell me your first gig in the business. Uh, my first gig was as uh, I worked in school. My first job was in 1972. So I've been doing this a long time. A long time. You look really good for a guy Thank who's going to be fitted for tennis balls on his walker soon. Very nice. Thank you, Barry. <laughs> uh, I I worked on a talk show in in Washington D.C. That was uh, an afternoon talk show, and it was hosted by Maury Povich, of all people. Wow. So I've, I've known Maury for close to 50 years. And I remember, <laughs> that sounds so weird to say, but I remember Maury was the first person I knew who was over 30. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is the coolest guy. And I was an intern on this show that he hosted. And he'd say, to, I remember he drove a Porsche. He was the first person I know to have a Porsche. <laughs> and also the first person 
who was 30 years old, who I thought was really cool. And he'd do the show. It was on from 12.30 to 2. He would finish the show. He'd take me in his Porsche. We'd go get lunch. We'd smoke a joint, come back to work. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, how cool is this guy? <laughs> and we've, we've stayed friendly. He, he, was, he was a, you know, a big influence on, on my early career. And what came next? Then I, I got out of school and I came back to New York. Now, what, what kind of existence were you living? Were you, I mean, did you, you're interning. How do you survive? How do you, what kind of apartment did you have? What kind I of was life in, did I you was, have? I was interning. At the same time, I was doing two radio shows on my college station. Uh, I had a second internship. But were you living at home or no? An I was in. in New I York? was away. I was. I had a, an apartment that I shared with friends. Stu Smiley being one of them. Stu Smiley, Stu of Smiley course, was the my, executive producer of Everybody Loves Raymond. He was one of my college roommates, and an we, ironic name for Stu Smiley, yeah. considering that he rarely smiled rarely at the smiles. time. And and we we were roommates in college. And then when we got out of school, he had transferred after a sophomore year, I think. And then we both got out and we stayed good friends. He went back to New York and got a job as a page at CBS. And he brought me in as a page. And so, that was at the Ed Sullivan and Theater. And that was, you know, at the Broadcast Center on 57th Street. And we used to, you know, give tours and seat audiences and, you know, just do general usher duties. And usher. You don't hear about ushers anymore. No, you that's, don't. A, that's a word of the past. Although at SNL they have the pages. Yeah. But they don't, they don't use the word usher. Usher no, is, a, is a dying word. The um, And we worked at the Sullivan Theater was one of the places that, that we had a page. And one of the assignments in the page corps was you had to work the box office at the Sullivan Theater, which was the worst job, giving out tickets, just sitting in this little box. And then... You, know, you mean that you're sitting in that uh, that uh, uh, the little clear, box the with clear the clear cylinder, the little the box middle? with the hole, and then you used to have to just give Got people it. tickets to TV shows. I remember the clear cylinder ones where they had the clear cylinder. In no, the, those in the are middle. the old movie theaters. Those were great. No, yeah. this this, this was, was a very elaborate, beautiful. You know, it was a beautiful theater. When we we were there, it was terrible. And then when Letterman came in in 1993, 92, I guess it was. Now, how much did you have to do with the fact that of choosing the Ed Sullivan Theater? Well, I mean, it, it, when when Letterman was because Letterman did his show at eight eight uh, uh, Rockefeller Six A Six A the same uh, set that Conan did his yes, at later yeah. same studio and Saturday Night Live was at, at the eighth floor eight A right, right yeah we uh, you know it was a it, it was a big decision to to go from a studio environment which is what we had done all those years doing the late night show and he was very much a studio performer. I mean, he used to walk out into the hallways. He would go, you know, across the hall to, to another show and disrupt the show. So he was very much an electronic performer, not a stage performer. You know, he had a background in stand up and obviously did, did work well, in front this, of audiences. This is what was amazing about, the, if I could just go back to the first incarnation of the show in the studio where you worked on, you started there as what? Segment producer. Segment producer. I, you, I wrote all the interviews on the show. Wow. So one of the I things... Was, I, I at first worked with another segment producer. They, they were usually two. And then when that person became a writer, I said, give me his job and I'll, I'll do all the interviews. 
and you know now shows have ten segment producers. I know, doing and, the, and you did the them stupidest all. thing. I did them all every it's night. It was so stupid, crazy. What I wanted to allude to is that one of the things I always remember, and again, you being a lover of stand-up, Dave being a stand-up and started as a stand-up comedian. One of the things that shocked me about The Letterman Show more than anything else, it was set up in a way that was against the comedian. It wasn't a setup that was conducive to a comedian doing really, really well. There was an enormous amount of space between the comedian and the audience. The audience was raised up about six feet. There were cameras all in front. Some of the audience members in the front couldn't even see the comedian from the cameras. And so I always felt that if you did well on the Letterman show, you really were amazing because it seemed like you were so disjointed from the crowd, yet Letterman thought well, this was a great environment. No, that was a, that was a, an environment designed for for television. It was an electronic environment. It was not a proscenium stage. It was not, you know, and that was the biggest adjustment. And and there was a man named Hal Gurney who directed the Letterman Show for many many years. And it was really his vision to take it out of a studio. And he was the first one to to really say, let's do it from a theater. Let's go to the Ed Sullivan Theater. And his instincts were, were, were tremendous. And I must say, I, I didn't think it was the greatest idea. As much as I loved that theater, I thought, you know, Letterman is, is made for television. He's, he's not a stage performer. You know, of course, I was wrong. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a That's lot. That's why I'm still it. there. We're going to talk a lot. <laughs> well, we might talk about that a little bit. So... So you go through, so you're there, and he's going to make the move. And you're, but you're there at the time of the craziest situation in talk show history when, you know, he wants the gig for The Tonight Show. Lena wants the gig for The Tonight Show. But like most people in our business, part of navigating the field is anticipating the crazy things that anyone would go to the lengths that they'd go to to get a gig mm -hmm. and in my mind i always thought that dave um and and he wasn't wrong in thinking this way i felt that he was entitled to the tonight show certainly and i think he felt i can't speak for him but i think he felt like he was entitled to the tonight show and Jay, um, unbelievably, because you never, if you ever meet Jay, you never think of him in terms of the kind of guy. If, if you ever spent like an hour or whatever with Jay Lennon, you'd never think of him, at least myself, and I've been with him many, many hours of my life. I wouldn't think of him as a guy who's hiding in an electrical closet in a conference room. Uh, I, I just, no, I, you just, you can't, but he did it. Because, you know, I guess desperate times called for def desperate measures, and he thought, Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I'm not going to get this gig, and I've been guest hosting for all these years, and I want this gig. And so he went the extra mile of figuring out how to navigate when he thought that Dave just understood, hey, I got this. He went the extra mile in every possible way. Letterman went the extra mile in doing a great show. Yeah. And I think it, it was a great lesson for me that you don't stand by the work alone. It's, it's, it's a political business. And yeah, it is a political business. Especially and, and, when you, you're and, answerable to 200 stations and you have a corporate boss, a corporate entity yeah, and Dave running was, your company. And, it's, it's, and Dave was the kind of guy who was just, he did a great show, but he was not the kind of guy who liked to shake hands and shake corporate hands and talk to affiliates and do everything he could to make them feel like a million bucks. The people who are writing the check, the sponsors... He was a guy who just stayed in his own box, and he was a. He was also, in many ways, I think, shy that way too. But that hurt him because Lena was the kind of guy who was, you know, bring all the sponsors in. I'll shake hands. I'll take pictures. I'll sign autographs. I'll do whatever. And I'll I think I'll never forget a, 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 something Letterman said to me, which kind of always to me describes Jay Leno and his his personality and and the kind of guy he was. I remember once talking about car collections. And Letterman has a wonderful collection, at least when I knew him, had a great collection of, of very sophisticated, sleek, you know, Italian, German sports cars. And, you know, he had the, the Cary Grant car from To Catch a Thief. And, you know, had beautiful, beautiful cars. And I once asked him about Leno's collection, and he said, Leno has parade cars. <laughs> And to me, it just, it's, it's so perfectly, you know, and I remember once seeing Jay Leno on, on Victory Boulevard in the Valley, riding around, waving at people in his Stanley Steamer car, and, you know, it was always just, like, that's what he was, where Letterman would, you know, have, get down low, pull his baseball hat, and didn't want to recognize anybody. Jay so, was very extroverted, and, and, and Jay's, Jay's a great comic. Yeah. Great comic. Works about 200, 250 dates a year. So take me just, I know we don't have, I mean, we could be here forever talking about this one segment of history. But just if you can, take me back to the moment when Dave and your show realized, holy shit, we've lost the Tonight Show. What the fuck are we going to do here? I I I never had that that feeling. I know Letterman did. I mean my my feeling was we're going to do this show somewhere. 
if we have to do it at 12.30, we could do it at 12.30. We can continue. I never felt like there would be no David Letterman's presence on, on, on network television. I mean, I always thought that, that, that he was safe and secure. But, I mean, the guy was basically, he was grooming himself for over a decade to take the chair of his idol. You don't find out one day that you've lost your dream and you can never get it back and you still have to go to work every day no. and do shows. How, how did, that was the hard part. How did I, he I handle think, that? I think you hit it on the head. I think the hard part was knowing that you didn't get it and we still had to go in night in and night out and do a good job for the network that just fucked you. I mean, that was all, that was the difficult thing. I think, you know, from all reports and, and recollections, I remember Dave being very, you know, stressed for a long time about it, but I don't, I don't think he ever got to the point of, of true desperation. But it was just, you know, there was that moment where you thought, why am I doing such a great show for these fucks who don't recognize what we're doing? And that was hard. That was always very difficult. And so, and as a result, he used to put up. We, we did a whole thing where we'd make fun of Warren Littlefield and give him the. He was the president of the network at the time, and you know, make him the employee of the week. And we would, you know, we were always on their case. And the move to CBS that opening night in that theater, that first show. I know Dave had a reputation of never being a hundred percent happy mm-hmm. with a show or how things were always felt like hey I could have done this better I could have done that better but take me after the show that first show do you remember like how he was feeling I think he felt great and I, I, I remember it being emotional I think it was a very emotional night for everybody involved uh, there was a sense of great reward great relief um, and it was it was very positive because he he really grew into the role and and i think and 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 i remember a conversation that we had and we were talking about how the new show would be different from the late night show and i said you know the late night show was about failure we celebrated failure on that show if we had a magician on who screwed up it would be the best thing that could ever happen to us that was gold on that show if we had an animal act on and the animal, you know, and the monkey started chasing after Letterman, that was the greatest moment ever for us. And and that's what made that show different from everything else. You know, we never stopped tape. We never retook anything. And I think when we went to the Sullivan Theater and CBS, we realized we have to mature. We have to do a, a bit different of a show. And it became, you know, we're, we're grown up now. Tell me why Dave seamlessly made the transition to late night at 11.30, 7 million people a week. Yet somebody who we all know, brilliant, and have a lot of respect for, Conan O'Brien, made the jump to 11.30 to a time slot that had been protected for over 30 years where Dave... There was no talk show there. What do you think it is that you know, is the it's, difference? It's, it, it's, you know, I'm looking at the picture of Muhammad Ali on your wall. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like comparing Muhammad Ali to Jerry Cooney. 
you know, it's 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 you know, Letterman is the greatest. I think even more so than Carson, he's the greatest to do what he he ever did. He was he in, invented, you know, electronic communications for an entire generation. They they grew up with with, you know, him doing. It was basically a video funhouse what he was doing, and. As much as I respect Conan as as a writer and a comedic visionary, I just don't think he was half the performer that David Letterman was. Do you think if Conan were sitting here, he would say the same thing? Sure, sure. I think I think Conan would recognize. I think Conan would recognize the genius of Letterman. I don't know how. I don't, and I don't even know the answer to explain why he failed at the Tonight Show. I I, I don't quite know. Uh, but I did see Letterman adapt to an eleven thirty time slot. I saw Letterman morph from from a niche performer to to the big room. You know, he he grew very well into it. And I don't know if 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 Conan necessarily had that same path, that that growth path that Letterman had. Uh, that's not to say what he did wasn't fantastic. I mean, I I I love Conan's work. Now I always saw you uh, as an amazing face. Of the Letterman Show, I mean, I don't think there was anybody that I knew in the business that didn't love to hang out with Morty, that didn't love to have conversations with Morty, that didn't love to spar a little bit and argue over why a guest couldn't get the show at a certain time. I always love a good argument. And sometimes you'd win, many times you'd lose, but... There wasn't anybody that didn't love it. But then it came to an end. And when it was coming to an end, you know, sometimes you can see things coming. Sometimes you can't see things coming, like Leno coming in and hiding in a closet. Could you see your tenure there coming to an end? Or were you, like, totally stunned when it all I think went you're, down? I think you're always totally stunned. I think that's just the nature of of the knockout punch. You're you're going to be you're going to be dazed a little bit. And the reason why I want to talk about this because of our audience, what's really important is that a lot of people listening, uh, if you are in our, our business or in any business, you get the shit kicked out of you, and you get the shit kicked out of you daily or monthly or yearly or even one big time and. And sometimes you're sitting in the fetal position on the floor doing that thing that Curly did around in circles mm-hmm. in the Three Stooges with a shot in your hand wondering what's going to be next. And I think it's important for our audience to hear, like, I'm, you know, let's face it. I don't even, normally at the end of these podcasts, I talk about somebody's lowest moment mm-hmm. and, and, and how they handled it. Clearly... That had to be one of the lowest moments of your professional life. So how did you handle it, and how did you, you know, figure it out and come back so strong? You know, saying I, I, I handled it by not taking it personally, even though it changed the course of my entire life. It was it was very interesting time because I was I always looked at myself as being defined by being the producer of that show. Uh, having a great job in New York City to really be, you know, between Saturday Night Live and Letterman, that was the top of the heap in, in New York at the time. It was, you know, pre-John Stewart and pre-Colbert. 
it was, you know, we were the only two games in town. And there was a great heady feeling about that. So getting fired from that position, your life changes as well as your professional life. And, you know, something I was ready for, for a life change. You know, I was in my 40s. I was still a bachelor. You know, I always wanted kids. And it, it kind of forces you because that's a lifestyle, a job like that. And those are young men's jobs. Uh, you have to commit completely to those. And I think that's part of the problem with a lot of the shows that are on the air now, that the hosts don't commit completely. The the producers all want to get home and have real lives. You know, the writers on The Letterman Show would be there all night. The bookers, we'd a, drop, a guest would drop out at the last minute. They'd be hustling all over town you know, at, at all hours to, to, to fill those holes. Uh, it's a lifestyle. It becomes a lifestyle. So that day, who tells you? Letterman. So Letterman, he calls you into his office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says, we want to make a change. You know, and we can't argue the point. It, it was, it wasn't confrontational. It wasn't. It was. I was. I was stunned by the punch. Obviously, I'm but here, then again, I'm, you look back and you go, "All right." I look at that same picture of Muhammad Ali standing over. Who was that? Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston. Yeah, I should know that. <laughs> Neil Leifer took it. I do know that. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, Bangor, Maine. Sonny Liston might have been. <laughs> Sonny Liston might have been stunned to shit, but you know something. Afterwards, no, he, he wasn't realized, stunned because he took a dive. Yeah, oh, that's true. Afterwards, he thought, you know, maybe I didn't train the way I should have trained. Maybe I was a little old. Maybe this, that. You know, you see all the writing on the wall after you get knocked out. Yeah. Well, you're telling me the story, like I, like I'm getting emotional because I hear the story and I think to myself, like. If, you know, basically the guy who walks on water in late night comes and sit across from me and says, we're making a change. First of all, you know how tough it is for him to walk in mm -hmm. and have that conversation. I don't think I could, it literally, if I had the the wind knocked out of me, I don't think I could say anything if I wanted to oh, say anything. Oh, you're full of baloney. You know why you're full of baloney? Why? Because you've been fired by many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and 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 you know, to be a, a, an effective manager, you have to look at these clients as children. These are your family. That's that's you know, that's what they say about the difference between a manager and an agent. You I know, thought it was five percent. You get to know the managers. Uh, five percent. Yeah, those were the days. Those were the days. You know, you get to know the manager's family. They really are part of your family, so you, you know exactly what it's like. Yeah, it's a kick in the stomach, and then you get over it. It's a little you bit lower. It's a little bit lower into yeah, the left. That's true. The kick. But you get up. You, pick you do get up. And, you yeah. do get up. You know the, the the good thing about it is, and 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 the strange thing for me, I never I, thought I, you were going in that direction. Man. And, and I don't know if it holds true for you with the clients that have fired you. I still love watching him. There was never a day that I stopped respecting him as 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 a, a comedian and a host. He was always the gold standard, and never, you know, getting fired from that show never. Never shook my respect for him as a performer. Got it. And after that day, when you walked out of that office, how many times have you spoken to him since? Never. Never. No, not a word. Have not a word. Have you I often think about the moment if I ever did, but no, not really. I haven't talked to him at all.
As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.